Hi, I'm Andrew Dubber. I'm director of Music Tech Fest, and this is the MTF podcast. This week, the podcast comes to you directly from MTF Labs in Aveiro, Portugal. We've gathered together some brilliant minds in a blended event. Some are here in the room, and some are in remote labs as far afield as Norway and Mexico, all collaborating, sharing ideas, making new things, and where it comes to science and art, crossing the streams as much as possible. And one of the things that we do in the labs is to have inspirational presentations, performances and provocations that are exclusively for the lab's participants and that feed new ideas into their projects and prototypes. Again, some of these are remote around the world. We had Paul D. Miller, aka DJ Spooky, zoom in from Colorado. Christian Gutman, the vice president for AI of Tieto Every, the third largest IT company in the world. He was here in the room. World-leading fashion technologist Lisa Lang, creator of artificial life Sophia Crespo, Alex Murray Leslie and Melissa E. Logan from feminist electroclash art band Chicks on Speed, vocal AI artist Harry Yeff, aka Reaps One, and many, many more all week. But one incredibly inspiring and thought-provoking presentation was by VIP guest Marta de Menezes. Marta's a Portuguese visual and installation artist, much of whose work takes place inside scientific laboratories, or that are, by the nature of the installation, transformed into scientific laboratories. Her first major biological artwork, Nature, with a question mark after it, involved modifying the wing patterns of live butterflies. And since then, she's used a wide range of biological techniques, including functional MRI of the brain to create portraits where the mind can be visualized, fluorescent DNA probes to create micro-sculptures in human cell nuclei, sculptures made out of proteins, DNA, live neurons, and bacteria. And she's even explored immortality and loneliness by creating cancer from her own cells and those of her partner. So, of course, we had to have a conversation. I have questions. From a beautiful, creative and forward-thinking city in one of my favourite countries in the world, this is the brilliant Marta de Menezes. Enjoy. Marta de Menezes, thank you for joining us for the MTF Podcast and the MTF Labs here in Aveiro. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. What brought you here, just out of curiosity? <laughs> curiosity <laughs> was, was one thing. And I was invited, so it, it was um, first the invitation come, uh, and and then it was um, I like I like new experiences, and I've never been to um, an event like this, and I do like when things are being created. I like to watch. Uh, it's it's a pleasure, uh, and being involved is is always um, a learning curve. So it's nice. Well, it makes a lot of sense that you're here because a lot of what we do here at MTF is about that collision of science and art, and and you probably embody that more than most people. <laughs> do you want to tell us a little bit about how you describe what you do? Um, I do art. I, 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 I do art with a very heavy content in terms of scientific knowledge, uh, but I wouldn't say, I'm not even sure it, science and art would be something that probably not the most descriptive of of because that makes you think of technology i guess and and what you do is less about uh robots and machinery and more about very high tech (laughs) very very high-end technology sure it's just not the technology we associate with technology uh in general and 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 sure it has uh during my career uh, i've thought a lot about 
what is technology? I think actually I started my journey into art and science um, through my questioning of what is technology, because technology can be making fire, um, sure. which is as low tech as you can get sometimes, sure, and it can sure. be just incredibly high tech um, as it as it as it can get, depending on materials you use and how how you actually go about um, solving the problem of how to make fire. Mm -hmm. So um, technology for me is not just associated with um, wires and and um, and um, and connectors and and lights and 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 complicated things, it can be a very simple thing. And I think this is one of the beauties of, of trying to understand what technology means for us as humans. Sure. Tell me about some of those simple things. <laughs> well, technology is about problem solving, I think. Yes. So uh, technology is, one, uh, defining the problem that you have and trying to solve it mm -hmm. to the best of your abilities with what you have at hand and you need to put yourself in a position where what you have at hand will allow you to solve that problem mm. and that's probably the most human ingenuity that you can have is to put yourself into a place where you can solve the problem in uh, in a in a effective and uh, and um, and useful way right. um, and i kind of like that Sure. Well, you presented last night here in the exclusives. We do these kind of inspirational talks uh, as part of the MTF Labs. And it occurs to me that the problems that you're using technology to solve are problems of biology, philosophy and emotion all kind of woven together. Do you want to talk about, you know, with specific examples maybe, um, how you address those sorts of things? Okay, um, I'm... I'll try. Um, sure. So, yes. So, because I'm an artist, I do um, artworks. And artworks do, uh, at least the way I see it, art is about thinking and rethinking problems that we probably have had since we've started thinking. Mm -hmm. um, so, art has always been about nature, about how we understand nature, how we understand ourselves. And... Art, for me, um, has a very uh, uh, privileged position in, in human activities, which is it has um, always um, uh, allowed and, and made a stand to keep the, the freedom to think uh, outside of the box as much as possible without restraints, uh, without restraints of production, without restraints of creating something that is use. Full. Um, I think the way I understand art is that its major use is to make you think, to make you feel, and and feeling is a part of thinking as well. So um, um, this is how I see myself as an artist. So all of the problems that I pose as an artist have to do with philosophy. Mm -hmm. Philosophy is a, 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 an absolute thinking way of trying to understand and solve problems. Sure. But it's not capital P philosophy, is it? It's, it's about thinking about what things mean, I guess. Um, I am 
I, it, I spend a lot of years being intimidated by philosophy. So now I, I, can, I can tell you that I'm not anymore. <laughs> so there's no such thing as philosophy with a capital P. Good, good to hear. <laughs> philosophy is also about how we live. And it's, it, it shouldn't be distanced from us. Mm -hmm. um, just like science shouldn't be different, distanced from us. Uh, and just like art shouldn't be distanced from, from us, from people. Mm. Um, it's, it's a big flag that I, that I try to raise every time I can, that art is not just for some, uh, it's for everybody, so is science and so is philosophy. It's, it's, it, it's, it's not something that we should be afraid of and it's something that we should think very carefully when we think about education, about not making it scary mm. and, and distant. Um, but like, like I was trying to explain, uh, looking into those problems and, and trying to um, not necessarily uh, solve them, but raise them and maybe uh, give different perspectives on how to look at the problems, because I don't think art is about solving any problems. Um, it's important for me to understand, since art is very much about nature and about uh, humans and about you know everything that surrounds us and that, and that we are a part of. Uh, for me, it makes perfect sense to use those living materials as well mm. um, to try and pose the questions, pose the problems, frame the po the problems maybe um, using the, the the material itself and right. not just uh, um, secondary representations of it. Sure. And and when you say living materials, I mean that's where what I mean by the biology. Do you want to talk about what you mean when you say living materials? Sure. Um, it is very, very literally uh, um, about using living organisms, sometimes whole, sometimes parts of them, like cell cultures, um, um, and sometimes other organisms, so others. Um, it can be plants, it can be uh, um, bacteria, viruses, um, anything uh, that makes sense. So the material is dictated by the question or the form that I want to give to the question that I want to pose. Mm. And therefore, it's also very much attached to the technology or the technique that I use to manipulate the material. And the two of them need to make sense and, and frame the question in, in a very specific way. So yesterday I was talking about um, immortality and thinking about immortality for me, um, it, it meant working with immortal cell lines and, and trying to create immortal cell lines Which out are? of uh, healthy cells. Um, immortal cell lines are a, a material, a, 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 a resource for science experimentation, mm -hmm. um, which reduces a lot of um, uh, animal um, sacrifice. Sure. Um, and, and it's very useful. Um, but until, um, I don't know, until uh, maybe 20 years ago, it could only be... Uh, um, acquired through biopsies mm -hmm. because immortal cell lines are actually actually cancerous cell lines so a healthy cell has a lifespan in sense that it has a number of times that it divides itself and then it uh, 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 achieves senescence and it uh, dies it stops dividing um, and cancer cells don't have that biological clock 
working properly. So wow. they never stop dividing. And this is why they call them immortal cell lines, because they never stop dividing. Not that each cell doesn't die, but it just keeps on dividing uh, indefinitely. Right. Um, and this allowed me to rethink what immortality can mean um, and what do we understand by it and, and how something which is a very mortal disease and, and mm. a, a, a very severe problem for today's society, um, maybe not think of it <laughs> because, you know, you think of an immortal cell line, you don't think of it as a problem. Yeah. And maybe we need to rethink some of those, um, some of the way we think about things, some, well, of, some of the way we think about cancer. I have a little bit of an issue with thinking about cancer as a disease. Mm. Um, because disease for me is an infection, an infection that can be treated. Uh, and, and an infection is usually by a bacteria um, or a virus. A virus is a little bit more complicated to, to, to deal with because you can't do anything except hope that your body will be able to deal with it. But a bacteria, you, you can because we have antibiotics unless it's a resistant bacteria. But cancer is um, your own body. Hmm. It is a part of you that just not necessarily broke or uh, uh, but that decided to i don 't know maybe it decided to live forever <laughs> wow. that, that is a new spin on cancer <laughs> and yes it 's killing all the rest of you and probably itself in the process but um, um, but I think we need to think of, of because of all of the stigma of, of disease, if yeah. you have a diseased body, you have a stigma attached to that. And I don't think, I think a lot of uh, nowadays diseases or what we call diseases attach stigma to people that have them that are not helping at all. Right are not helping at all. I, mean, I know I'm asking an artist a medical question, but do, is that the reason that we don't have an immune response to cancer because it's not external to us? It's one of the reasons. Actually, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but I did ask that question a few times and I'm not sure I got the whole answer uh -huh. uh, because it is uh, uh, very complicated. But yes, the immune system and, and actually one of the, uh, a few of the uh, strategies for therapies against cancer now have a lot to do with immunology mm -hmm. because of this, because cancer is recognized as a mistake and the immune system is activated to take care of it. Hmm. But there's also a mechanism of, um, of, uh, uh, of restraint. So if the, if the immune system is very much activated, it's not aimed at one specific thing too carefully, so it's going to kill a lot of things. And so there's a system of, of okay, yes, we attack, but then we need to slow down, otherwise we destroy the the whole thing around it uh, and so it's a lot of the strategies in in in, in medical um, uh, research to to try and tackle uh, cancer is actually one to make it very there's one possibility of making the antibodies so specific that they will really only attack the cancer cells um, or to modulate that uh, regulatory system of activating the immune system and creating uh, uh, um, inflammation as well mm. and slowing down. Um, um, it's just that the immune system is not guarded by... Um, it, it's not... 
it doesn't actually have a brain behind it to decide this in this case you should keep on attacking it until it's gone or not um, maybe we can modulate that that um, that system so how do you take this specific knowledge and turn that into an artwork how do you make art out of the idea that cancer is immortal <laughs> well um, this is the thing is it, um, um, the, the, the piece that I did, Immortality for Two, is very much about thinking what immortality means for our scale and not a cellular scale. Mm-hmm. Um, it is using the cell lines, um, uh, and, I, and I, I didn't do my own cell line for health and safety reasons, but I asked my partner to do it with me, and he did my um, immortal cell line out of my, um, antibody, uh, out of my um, immune cells, uh, white blood cells, and I turned his white blood cells into um, um, immortal cell lines. Because you can't touch your own... It's not that I can't touch, but if I am basically taking my own cells and putting them outside of my body and turning them into cancer, there is the possibility, it's not very high, but there is the possibility that I will reabsorb as I'm doing the protocol, that I will reabsorb these cells and my immune system will not differentiate it. Right. I will not know that I have cancer and I will have cancer um, inadvertently. And it's a risk that it's not necessary to take. Uh, and so, so what you're saying is you created cancerous cells from your partner and your partner created yes. cancerous cells from you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and therefore paper. achieved that kind of immortality. Wow. Uh, which, which is exactly the irony, okay? This yeah. is it. We did it together. We did it in parallel. We mm-hmm. can, those cells can never be together um, because they will attack each other because they're white blood cells. Right. Um, and So each will try and uh, fight off the other as uh, an immune response. Yes. Uh-huh. Wow. That's what they're programmed to do. This um, is what they Presumably do. that's not the nature of your relationship on the, on the human scale. Uh, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is part of the game as well. It's like, yeah. you know, uh, a, a relationship is a complex thing and um, it's about negotiation and, and, and all of that. So, yeah, that is definitely a part of um, why I find the project interesting. Well, because it's, it's, it's not quite, an answer. It's quite something that you've managed to get a partner who's on board with this sort of thing. <laughs> There's a reason why we're together. Sure. <laughs> sure. There's many reasons why we're together, but that's definitely one of them. It's um, it's 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 exhilarating to discuss these things with wow. someone who's not only knowledgeable to 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 give back, but very much with a sense of humor to think <laughs> to think about these things in this way. <laughs> um, but we do we do have a lot of fun discussing these things. We have a lot of fun discussing a lot of things. Uh, I bet. So. Uh, it, it occurs to me that uh, at face value, you would seem to be somebody with this incredible scientific background who came to art, but it didn't happen that way around, did it? No, it's quite the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have a painting degree, uh, so I know how to make a portrait. I was really good at them, oil paintings and everything, um, but I didn't see myself... Um, doing that for the rest of my life Um, and um, I don't know I was a little bit disenchanted by the end of my um, um, degree into what I could be as an artist and I didn't particularly feel like being an artist the the community didn't feel very friendly it felt very competitive um, and 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 it felt very lonely 
to be an artist um, or learning to be an artist at that mm. time. It felt very lonely. Um, so I actually think I connected with um, scientists or future scientists at that stage, um, um, friends more, because um, being around them, it made me... Um, see things a little bit different. They mm. were incredibly excited about what they were learning and had dreams that would never end about how they were going to save the world, which is kind of intoxicating to be around. Sure. Um, and of, they were, sorry, out of curiosity, where and when are we talking about? We're talking about um, 97, 98, when I was um, the, third la the, third, the three last years of my degree. Which is where? In Lisbon, in Portugal. Uh -huh. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I, I broke your thread. That's but, okay. But, but the but idea that, that people are excited about uh, changing the world, um, and I guess that that's painting portraits probably doesn't feel like the same thing. No, it does not. <laughs> it does not. It does not. Uh, not that I, you know, I was, I'm not, so a lot of my fellow, uh, uh, so my colleagues in art, you know, art has always been typically um, a, a course that you take because you're not comfortable with maths or science. Right. And that has never been my case either. My mom was a physics and chemistry professor. Mm -hmm. um, so science was not, not nothing to be afraid of. Sure. Um, and, and she was very, um, she made sure that I knew uh, uh, science and, and, and had a scientific I don't know spirit in in some ways, and I, I am what my what my friend scientists tell say I'm a very reasonable artist, <laughs> which, which is kind of a backhanded compliment. But it's <laughs> I know, but I kind of like it. <laughs> it's not very straightforward. Not sure. sure if it's a compliment or not. <laughs> For artists, you're kind of you're, you're quite reasonable. reasonable. Yeah. For a scientist, it's a good, it's a, a real compliment in the right. sense that they, they are not uh, scared of discussing things with me and, and, and being unable to, to pursue a discussion. Right. <laughs> um, and, and so it's not like I was, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very much aware that I was primed to do art and science in a way. Um, uh, I, I was not averse to science. I, I was never scared of science. I love maths. My kids are, are, are crazy about maths. Um, uh, and so uh, it, it was not that I went to the, to the arts um, wanting to run away from, from science. So going, finding science and finding the dreams of science, something attractive while I was finishing my degree, felt right. And, and I never left. But I I think I spent the first 10 years of my career uh, completely immersed in science with very, very little contact with artists and philosophers and anthropologists and sociologists and humanities in general. And I did miss that very, very much. Sure. So I, uh, at a certain point, it felt to me that I needed to build my community uh, a little bit more diverse 
uh, and and I'm very proud to say that my my community my my community now is very diverse. I, I I I have very good friends. I talk to about philosophy, about art, about science, um, and and we're all pretty geeky about all of those things. Right. I, it, all of this has me wondering because you did go to art, even though you weren't running away from science. What kind of kid were you? <laughs> I was a very good student. <laughs> I was very, very quiet. Nothing like today. Um, now I'm loud and I laugh really uh, hard and I enjoy. Uh, and nobody easily, will, it seems. Nobody will tell you <laughs> that I'm that I am a, um, an introvert. But uh, I was incredibly quiet um, and um, uh, bookworm. Mm-hmm. And I loved drawing. Um, I think I went to art because I just spent hours um, drawing, um, and and my teachers noticed that and encouraged that side. Probably more, I don't know. It just felt right to go into art. Hmm. Interesting. So, but you don't draw so much now, or do you think of it as a kind of drawing? The art that you make. I mean, what no, is? No, I don't think of it as drawing. I don't draw. I draw as a hobby. Okay. <laughs> I draw for Zen. So drawing is a tool that makes my that makes my brain relax. Right. Which is sometimes very useful to solve an issue or a problem or something right. that is that I find you know it's 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 one of those strategies. Drawing is is um, is relaxing and it 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 makes your brain reach a certain level of meditation that allows you to relax but also solve problems which mm. is very useful but um but no i don't draw and i am i'm addicted to intellectual problems to intellectual challenges right i i, I kind of get a sense of why you use uh, the sort of scientific approach in your art what do you imagine that other people coming to it get from it Ooh, hopefully the same pleasure that I do. So for me, um, learning about the science, um, learning the hows, and learning, more importantly, the questions that they're putting forward and trying to understand how things work um, is, for me, always a, a matter of wonderment in the sense that I... I'm in a very privileged position to be actually in contact with people who are making absolutely new knowledge, something that it can't find can't find in textbooks until a few years later. Wow. Um, except this year, I'm actually in contact with people who can explain to me how the the different vaccines are being developed, what different strategies they're using to develop these vaccines and why they're going in these specific directions and not others. Mm. Why do they think this will work and not another route? So for me, this is like, okay, this is like a candy store or maybe a hardware store for an artist because they sort of look like candy stores. (laughs) Um, It is this... Being able to be in a, acknowledging the privilege that it is to be able to be in a space where you are witnessing things like it's, it's a discovery. It's maybe it's a little bit like, uh, 
exploration, uh, the most romantic way you can look at it is witnessing people exploring the unknown. Mm. Uh, and it's the closest I can get to it uh, in terms of science, but also realizing that by being in this position, I can also be in a similar position towards art. Mm. Um, so as an artist, I am also um, in a position to push what art is to its boundaries and, and beyond those uh, and create artistic knowledge that hasn't been um, uh, created before. Mm. So in science, you discover. In art, you create. Yeah. Wow. You, you mentioned the word romance, and th there does seem to be a kind of a romantic element in, in what you're doing. And I wonder if you think of romance in terms of the sort of sentimentality or whether this, or this is something that you've kind of given a deep no. thought to. No, it's not about the sentimentality. It's, it's more about the, the, the romantic ideals that are still very much uh, something we inherited um, um, and that I try to fight a little bit because I think it's um, a fallacy and a, and a problem. It, it, it skews our perspective and it probably limits the things that we can do and the, and the, and the directions that we, that we can bring our knowledge towards. Um, but I think my motivations are as romantic as my friend scientists who wanted to change the world. Mm -hmm. I think the motivation, it's okay to be romantic in a way. Yeah. It's important not to be too romantic when you're in the the in the moment trying to actually uh, um, create or or discover new new knowledge. Right. How do you evaluate whether a project or a, or a piece that you've created is successful or not? Um, that has to do with um, with how much how it works when it reaches the public. So I am a believer that art is only done. It's a com it's a communication uh, device whatever you may understand of art, it is a communication, or a miscommunication maybe, uh, but it's a, a game of communication. It's not necessarily to be uh, didactic or very clear, or you know, it's meant to be um, exploratory and, and, uh, and um, experimental. Um, but it needs that other part mm. where the public brings in their own knowledge into it and 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 actually it's it's sort of a meeting yes so my job is to create triggers for that uh, to happen for that moment where you are in front of an artwork and you're experiencing it and your mind is set in motion and whatever that direction whatever direction it takes you, that is an, a, 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 an efficient or a, a successful art piece. If it, of course, there's gradients of, of, of effectiveness or, or success in the sense that I am absolutely, um, I'm, I'm absolutely aware that some of my works will take you some places and others will take you a lot further. And of course, for me, the ones that take you a lot further are more interesting. And trying to understand where those directions are is very interesting for me. But it's always a limited experience. I can't ask everybody what did they understood of the piece, how they 
um, uh, experience it and what it made them feel. Sure. The communication element comes up a lot. When you talk about the intersection of art and science, the idea is that people do science and then the artist comes along and communicates that to people. But it seems like you do science <laughs> by doing art. Um, Would that be fair? I don't know. It depends on what you call science. So I don't think science is the owner of new knowledge. I think that is very clear. So I ha I'm reluctant to say that what I'm doing is science. I do experimentation, but experimentation can be done in any field. Right. Um, uh, and and I and the questions that I pose are very different from um, a scientific um, question. I'm I'm pretty sure I don't make science because of that. I don't follow the scientific method. Method. I don't need um, statistical uh, relevance to any of my works. I, one time works fine for me. Mm. Uh, and every time being different works absolutely perfectly for me as well as I, as it would probably for any artist, but it would never do for science. And this is again one of those freedoms that that I that I understand that art gives me that it wouldn't if I went if I had gone into science. I would be constrained and and it's important for science to work to actually progress. Um, to have those constraints. Um, but for art, it would be the death of the artist or the art, I think. It would become something else. For art to be art, one of the things that it needs to be is different for everybody. Um, so that there's no statistical analysis that is possible. Sure. Um, uh, and But this is a very important role in in for humanity, for, for life itself. Because life is not just about statistical relevance there's always the odd cases and uh, and 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 art is very good at dealing with individuality and multiplicity at the same time mm. you you said the scientific method would be a constraint do you have a method or is not having the method the lack of constraint i have a method myself um i have a way of visualizing my process that could be um, it can be compared to a scientific method in the sense that I actually devised that diagram of, of what I do to try and explain to scientists how I go about doing my work because it, it's easier for them to understand that there is, there is a, a path to go through. I don't intend it ever to be a universal thing. I think everybody has their own Every artist has their own way of of achieving whatever they set out to achieve. Um, they probably uh, step through similar steps, maybe more steps, maybe less. Um, for me, it works because whatever material, whatever technology or technique that I use, those those stepping stones are always there. So it's a it's a way for me to understand where I am in, in any project that I uh, start and, and when I'm ready to actually um, put, put an art piece in an exhibition mm. or something like this. Um, but it's, I don't know, maybe, maybe there is a way of trying to understand uh, the artistic methodology, but, um, but it's always a little bit risky to try and pin it down. Sure. 
Sure. I, I'm wondering about that moment, if it was a moment, that you walked away from portraiture <laughs> towards whatever it is you're doing now with, with science and biology and, and, and these sorts of things. Did you arrive fully formed or was there a, a kind of an experimentation with different ways of approaching what it is that you're trying to do? Um, no. Um, and, and more importantly, even if I did arrive anywhere, I didn't have a conscious that I was arriving anywhere. Um, so I have now spent 22 years thinking about what I do. Right. Um, and I've achieved a moment that I am pretty sure I know myself a lot better than I did you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 or 20. And, and there is that advantage that comes with age, that you understand a little bit of a little bit better your limitations, but also your strengths. You also get a lot more efficient. So it's amazing to me how much time I wasted <laughs> at many different times in my life um, trying to tackle um, reading scientific texts and things like this when I can now just read diagonally and understand what is the, the content of the, of the article and decide if I want to read it more at length and actually understand the technology behind it right. or, the, or the knowledge that they're making um, or not. But it comes through experience. Experience is absolutely invaluable. It's, it's time well wasted. It's absolutely time well wasted. Um, but I, and so consciousness of the steps that I take to produce an artwork, to conceive of an artwork, to make an artwork... Um, all of those steps are a lot more conscious now and it was about analyzing how the artworks came to be right. it was about explaining the artworks talking to other people about the artworks and listening to their questions that actually made me more conscious of the steps that I take and the decisions that I make and my own bias because in anything that I listen to, I'm perfectly aware that I will listen to it in the frame of what identity can be or can be understood as. And so I know that if I see a lot of um, people talking, whether they're in science or not, I my brain will automatically, automatically go into what does this say about identity what does this say about our understanding of ourselves right. uh, and that is a bias that i've been building on because of my interest within the subject sure because i mean you are obviously somebody who's very clear about who they are and, and what they do and what they mean um and this idea of identity does seem to be really important to you what, what does identity mean exactly <laughs> i'm still trying to find out <laughs> okay so i haven't so for instance um the la the last project that I, that I that I did anti Marta where where I exchanged skin nice um, pun incidentally <laughs> skin uh, uh, skin uh, uh, transplants with my partner you know just thinking um, about what I said yesterday that thinking that the that my body is more equipped to decide who I am than my brain. Mm. In, 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 the, in that the immune system differentiates very clearly self from non-self in, uh, in a very small scale. Sure. 
makes me think about identity in a completely different way. Until that project, I really thought that I had pretty much settled with the idea that identity is something that is in constant change. Mm. That every second of my life, I'm different from what I was a second ago. And I was pretty happy with that because I, I, I'm, I spent a lot of time um, making peace with the idea that we are in constant transformation and, and going against all of my instincts of trying to be stable or trying to have a core that was rock solid and that everything that happened wouldn't in, in any way shake that core mm. as a defensive mechanism that I think we all sort of have. And so I had made my peace and I was actually very, very content with thinking that you know, it con- trans- transformation is, is something that you, we should look forward to mm. and, 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 and that our plasticity would be our best weapon to deal with anything that came at us. Right, because I don't have the same level of understanding of biology clearly as you do, but <laughs> I get the sense, or or at least I, I pick up the the idea that you know, two years from now, we're all new bits. You know, it's it's all new cells, and also on top of that, identity being a cultural construct that we can actually mould and so on. But you're saying that there is this constant that is self and not self that is, is well, determined. Well, this is the thing. This is the thing. This 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 idea that there's a system in my body which is completely separately from my self-consciousness, um, deciding what is me and, is, and what is not me and negotiating the, the boundaries of that is something that really blew my mind in the sense that what does it mean? And I'm not sure what does it mean. Maybe it's, it's a project for... A, it's a it's the, the it's the next project or the uh, the few projects after this, but what does it mean to have a system in in your body that decides that? It would it for me it means that I need to understand a little bit better how it works, mm. um, even to use it as a metaphor. Maybe we are looking at it completely the wrong way. And what if it's wrong? I, I, I think it's a great thing that it's wrong. Maybe we do need to look at it in, in a different way sure. to be able to deal with, the, you know, with environment issues, with uh, um, this idea that we are ourselves and nothing else is very, very limited. Mm. Um, this, um, we do need, but it's, 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 a, it's a difficult process for our brain. We are limited by our biology and our understanding is also limited by our brain power in a way there's only so much that we can hold in at the same time in our brains um and and um and maybe we we can help ourselves by thinking in a different way sure as someone who's given a lot of thought to immortality you must have also given a lot of thought to death uh, is that yes? Yeah, I mean, do you have a particular take on on this idea of of that that we decay and that we stop? <laughs> um, uh, no, I think my mother is a little bit more of an inspiration on that, um, though not not necessarily her in a personal way, but all of the. Um, so I, I I think about that more in a um, physics kind of way of uh-huh. energy, entropy, and, that sort of thing. Yep. Um, so 
Yes. Um, it's, it's funny. I've been talking about death with a lot of people recently um, and uh, with a lot of artists as well. Uh, and it's it everything is is together, right? So even setting up the 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 project with the butterflies in a gallery space, it's always an important thing to announce to anybody that comes in that butterflies die and they will die during the exhibition. And it's not because they're in that specific place. It's not our fault directly. It's because they have a lifespan and so they will die. Uh, because people get a little bit horrified and think it's a huge fa failure to see dead butterflies on the floor of the greenhouse of, the of an art piece. Sure. It's, it's, and, and I've had curators come and tell me, you should clean them up and, and hide them. And I go, well, that sort of defeats the purpose of understanding that this is a living organism. Sure. Um, Do you want to give us a little bit of context about that? Because not many people would think to put butterflies in an, in an art exhibition. <laughs> so, Living ones, certainly. <laughs> so the, the, the piece is about what we call nature or the criteria that we use to determine if something is natural or not. And to think about this, I actually uh, discovered a technology that allowed me to alter the wing patterns of life butterflies without without altering very much. So the, the effect is very, very clear because these are asymmetrical butterflies. I only change one wing of the butterfly. Mm. Um, but it's an alteration which is a developmental alteration. So it's not a genetic manipulation. And so if you look at the butterflies in terms of genetics, they are exactly the same as the wild type. This also means that each butterfly... And the art piece that they are themselves, it has the lifespan of the butterfly. So the offspring of this butterfly is going to revert back into wild type. Um, the, um, so just, just to be clear, in the wild, these are symmetrical butterflies. There's no such thing as asymmetrical butterflies in the wild. Right. So you're creating butterflies that are, are lopsided in some way, at least visually. Yes. The, the visual clue is that they are asymmetrical, and mm. this would never occur naturally. This is the, the visual clue that someone did something to them. Yeah, there, um, this was, there was a decision made to do this. Uh, external to the butterfly itself. Right. Um, the lifespan is the same. Uh, the mating behavior is the same. There's no scars on the butterfly. Um, and so my question is, okay, so you call these butterflies natural or not? They're alive. They have their lifespan. They breed. They have offspring. So what are, what are, what are you basing your decision on if these butterflies are natural or not. Right. Because I feel like I don't have an answer for that, and I feel like that might be the point. That is exactly the point. <laughs> and that is exactly the problem. <laughs> right. Amazing. So uh, I guess the, the idea of intervention to alter a species, uh, or at least examples of a species, uh, that are... I guess purely cosmetic. It's not survival. It's not, uh, like you say, it's not, uh, you're not it dealing with the DNA. It is survival. So the, 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 the wing pattern is actually for predators. Um, so if you divert the attention of the predator from the body of the butterfly onto the wings, mm. when the predator hit, bites the wing, the butterfly usually can... Uh, fly away because mm. they can fly with very few very little wings uh, or very damaged wings and this is the objective um, is to fly away to breed mm. yeah 
Yeah, it seems like the, the unnatural part, if, if it could be said to be that, is not the pattern on the wing, but the being in an art gallery. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yes, <laughs> being subject to scrutiny, yes. Yeah, absolutely. That's really, really interesting. But you have also worked at the DNA level, I understand. I have. So yes. tell me about CRISPR, because that's something that sounds, <laughs> I mean, I have a very Hollywood understanding of the capabilities of that, so you better explain it to me. Actually, it's, it's, it's interesting, because I, I, I imagine that very few people understand what CRISPR Okay, so the first thing you need to know is that CRISPR is not a technology. It has been taken on as a technology, but it is not technology. So actually CRISPR is one of those examples of basic knowledge being taken and applied. CRISPR actually is, is being described a little bit like the immune system of bacteria. Okay, so bacteria also have... Um, infections, and there in the infections are by phages, which is which is virus um, that particularly is um, damaging for bacteria. And bacteria evolved to have um, something which is now being described as the immune system of the bacteria, which is actually a library. So bacteria have in them um, enzymes which when they are in, invaded by uh, a virus, and it's actually not the virus that goes into the bacteria, the virus is um, attached to the surface of the cell of the bacteria and, and put in a little bit of their DNA and expect the bacteria to replicate that DNA and therefore more viruses will uh, burst out of this bacteria. This is how viruses reproduct, uh, reproduce. Um, by inserting this piece of DNA into the bacteria, the bacteria then, if survives the virus, what it does is it takes a piece of this DNA and builds a copy of it that it uh, puts in uh, an area of its own DNA, which is built a little bit like a, a, a library. So every virus that that bacteria has survived has left a little bit of its DNA into the DNA of the bacteria. So that it can and be recognized in future, presumably. Exactly. And this is what CRISPR is. It's palindromic repeats, which it's the piece of the DNA of each virus uh, and it's separated by these palindromic repeats, which are DNA that is, that is done um, by the bacteria. What they found out was, when they described this mechanism that the bacteria has, they found out that these enzymes can actually, because the, this is why they call them the molecular scissors, they can actually do this process in any other organism, in any cell. And they've tried programming it. So if you have the Cas9 um, molecule, which is the molecular scissors, mm -hmm. and to it you attach a guide RNA, which will tell the scissors where to cut, sure. the scissor will cut at, at that specific site. And all you need to do then is to add to it a guide or a template, and that template will tell the, the DNA of the cell how to repair that piece that was cut off. And this is why CRISPR is so effective at uh, uh, altering the genetically um, the cells. Um, and 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 this is why it's so revolutionary as well because you can uh, you can change cells without changing the whole er organism. Right. 
I have two questions about that. Okay. The, the, and, and maybe, I don't know which is uh, easier to address, but um, one is what are the affordances of that? What does that allow to happen? And, and the second part of that is what are the ethics of this? How does that play out? It, it's, it's very different. So the technology itself is very promising and it's evolving tremendously. So mm-hmm. now there's a... A lot of technologies which are based on this one, which are probably an an advancement on this. When this was found, it was tested and it was used wildly. Uh, But this means that also it got improved wildly and it's still improving. Okay, But there are two two main paths for it. One is this thing that it can alter parts of a body without altering the whole body. And this is interesting because the ethical issues around this are a lot less complicated than if you alter the whole body because altering the whole body means altering the germline. And so that organism will send, will propagate this into the offspring that it gets and it's a whole line of manipulated organisms. Uh-huh. Um, so you have two main lines which have very different ethical issues. The one that seems to be more promising in terms of disease um, is the one where you can alter um, only cells. And, and, and because you can alter only cells, you can, you can aim it at specific cells. Like It can be about disease, but it can also be about changing your eye color for instance. So mm-hmm. this is just an example. Sure. I don't know of any lab who's trying to do this. And uh, so... The, the issue with this technology is that you could, in principle, change your eye color by uh, administrating the molecule, the guide RNA, and the template into your iris. Yes? Wow. The problem is how to achieve, um, to make sure that it gets to all of the cells. So, in theory, Actually, with the technology that you have nowadays, you would have a sort of like Harlequin effect that some cells would change color and others would not. Hmm. Okay? And this is exa- the same problem that you have with trying to solve a disease. If you have a, a, a genetic disease that needs to be um, uh, fixed in a specific uh, organ, for instance, then you could, in principle, uh, genetically change. Uh, the and, and correct the 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 problem, but you, until nowadays it's been incredibly difficult to actually make sure that it reaches all the cells that it need to needs to reach, mm. um, and 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 therefore solve the problem. But in terms of research, it's very promising because it's about starting a process of trying to understand how it works with the germline. The implications in terms of ethics are enormous. Sure. Um, and, but just to tell you the impact of CRISPR as a technology, it was in 2017 that the, for the first time the UK uh, um, actually allowed um, manipulation of, of human um, uh, embryos with CRISPR Wow. up to a certain date. And until CRISPR, this was completely forbidden. So this actually triggered, I think, this the CRISPR triggered a, a, a worldwide fever of actually 
we can actually do this. We can actually mani- manipulate um, humans for the first time. Yeah. And in, in um, and I guess at the same time, should we? 2019, 2018, sorry, yeah. um, was when um, the Chinese um, uh, researcher, Hei, came up with the news that he had uh, genetically manipulated two embryos and that actually the babies were born, um, right. which was a, a, a very big scandal and problem in terms of worldwide uh, science uh, research. I can imagine it uh, ruffling a few feathers. Oh, yes, it was. <laughs> well, I, I guess in the, in the same way, I mean, given that you've worked with uh, these sorts of ideas and, and these sorts of technologies, that your work would both inspire a lot of people and terrify a lot of people. It does. Is that a good outcome for you? It is because I am terrified as well. I do. I do. I. This is. This is. I could try to avoid the ethical issues that work with living material would, uh, um, but I would have to leave working with with living materials to avoid the ethical issues. Mm. And I actually think the ethical issues are incredibly important to be raised, and to be raised in art. Art and not just in the newspapers or or even just by the scientific community, because it's a little bit like a conflict of interest. If the scientific community has an ethical issue, they don't want to raise it because it will hinder their progress. Hmm. So there's an ethical uh, 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 um, um, a conflict of interest there. But an artist doesn't have any um, gain to have by not raising an ethical issue. And actually, we are passionate and committed enough to understand the implications of of, of raising an ethical issue um, very strongly with the work that we do. So uh, we have this long history of of art raising ethical issues and having a a political um, impact. So I think it's... You can't, actually morally, I don't think you can avoid or, or try to hide from, from having that, that as part of your making of, of new knowledge in a way. Sure. It's interesting you said morally because I don't hear that a lot. I hear people talking about ethics a lot. I don't hear people talking about morals <laughs> a lot. Do you, do, you, do you bring that to the table with, uh, um, with your work? Well, it's it's different. Ethics is very different from mor- morals. Yes, moral is something that you believe in. Mm. Ethics is an issue, and there's many sides to an ethical issue. Sure. Um, uh, and so, but I guess it's morality that decides in the end. Yes. <laughs> so, who should decide? I don't think morality should decide uh, because morality implies also a little bit of. Um, one-sided. Um, it, it implies a decision that has already been done. Um, right. Ethics um, is is more um, um, inclusive in a way, and I and I trust ethics more than I trust morale. But mm. I do have, I do feel moral obligations. But I know that they are mine. Right. I don't try to impose them on anybody else. Those like yourselves are inherently you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> absolutely. Marta, it's been absolutely fascinating. I feel like I could uh, do this for a very long time, but uh, I just want to say thank you so much for, for joining us for the UNTF podcast today. Thank you for the questions. It You're was a really, welcome. really interesting conversation. 
That's Marta de Menezes, and that's the MTF Podcast, episode 99. We hit the big 100 next week, so don't miss the special edition we have coming up. Meanwhile, you can find more about Marta at martademenezes.com. I'll put a link to that on the site. And lots more about us at mtflabs.net and at mtflabs on Twitter. I'm Dubba. That's at Dubba on Twitter. I'll catch you next week. You stay safe and healthy. Wear a mask. Wash your hands. Try to be careful with your mitochondrial DNA, white blood cells, and significant others. And we'll talk soon. Cheers.